بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to our podcast series The Beginning of Guidance for Muslim Women My name is Um Abdullah and I'm very happy to welcome you back to our third episode in this series Today, we're going to just take a little bit of a tangent, a little bit of a sidestep from the topic of our book and discuss a few other issues associated with a pedagogy, with the theory of the method and practice of teaching and learning. And inshallah, we're going to look at that from a historical point of view in terms of the Islamic scholarly tradition and also how it relates to us today as English-speaking Muslim women when it comes to our own learning of the traditional sciences and what it means for us to actually study books in the Arabic language. So we will start, inshallah, as per usual, with our dua for learning from the great uh, scholar Imam Haddad. So please join me. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Nawaitu ta'lamu wa ta'lim wa tadhakkuru wa tadhkir wa nafa wal intifa' wal ifada wal istifada wal hatha ala tamassuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulih wa du'a ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair ibtigha'a wajhillahi wa maradatihi wa qurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala Amin ya Rabb Allahumma iftah alayna ya arhamar rahimin First of all, when we talk about pedagogy, what we're actually discussing is the study of the theory of the method and practice of teaching and learning. There are different definitions of pedagogy and there are different theories about pedagogy which exist, uh, particularly in uh, the Western educational sciences. However, we're just going to take a general sort of concept and that's looking at how it is that teaching occurs and how it is that through that teaching that learning actually occurs. So that's your basic subject matter for this notion or this concept of pedagogy, which is actually an ancient Greek word as the pedagogue was the one who traditionally was a slave man who took the child, accompanied the child to the place of learning for the child's classes and then brought the child back home again. So that's where it originates from. And then over the passing of time, it became associated with the actual teacher uh, himself would have been in an educational institution. And so the teacher became the pedagogue. So the one who actually imparts knowledge. So that's a little bit about where the word comes from. And the peda part refers to the child. The teaching of adults developed its own term called andragogy and that came around more in the 1970s and was quite popular then as a field of study because children and adults learn quite differently from each other but it didn't really stick and so this use of the term pedagogy remains and it has to do generally as we mentioned with this whole theory of the method and practice of teaching and learning. 
So when we talk about in the Islamic context of pedagogy, then the primordial pedagogy is that of reading and listening, or more specifically, of some form of recitation and listening. So when Jibreel came to the Prophet in the cave of Hira and said to him, Iqra, read, what he was saying then was not from a text or from words that had already been written, but read as in recite. And the word Qur'an, as we may have mentioned before, actually means something that is read or something that is recited. And if you remember from the previous episode where we looked at the commentator's introduction and then part of his salawat was on those alladheena saddaqu bima tala. So peace and blessings be on those who believed what it was that the Prophet ﷺ tala, that he recited. And then we get tilawa from that and tilawa to Quran, the recitation of the Quran. So the basic concept of the recitation or the explicit pronunciation of something being listened to is the primordial pedagogical method. And this, of course, is how it is in all societies, regardless of how uh, literate they might be in terms of reading and writing, all information, all knowledge is handed down through the spoken word and then through listening to that. In the pre-Islamic days of the Arabs of the Arabian Peninsula, of course, this was very much inculcated through their culture of poetry, where the recitation of poetry and the listening of poetry was the main method of teaching and of conveying knowledge, culture and meaning. And very few people could read or write, and or they actually had literary skills in that sense. And that wasn't a problem. That was quite normal, and even the greatest poets themselves didn't necessarily have writing skills, but what came down to was the strength of their memory and the eloquence of their tongue, and that was the sign of thakafa, the sign of the acculturation or the level of culture of the particular person, how well they could express themselves in words and how meaningful it was for those who listened to that. And there is a whole genre of poetry called the Mu'allaqat, where the Arabs had a poetry festival every year and the poems that were deemed the best were actually hung on the Kaaba itself uh, as a sign of the greatness of Tadim, of venerating these particular poems. And there were men poets, there were female poets, um, it didn't really matter. Poetry was something that was, to some extent, a fairly universal activity. Also, as we know from the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, that the people of Mecca used to send their very small children off to foster families in the desert where they would learn the correct Arabic and they would learn the eloquence of the desert Arabs and pure language. They would learn a pure dialect as well as get strong on the fresh air and on the lifestyle in the desert. And then they would come back and they would be considered as having thakafa, of having culture, and that was an essential part of their education. And that wasn't written, that was all spoken. When the Prophet ﷺ received the revelation and he began to teach, 
what he had learnt. Then the very first house of learning was in the home of Arkham ibn Abi Arkham, who was one of the earliest believers. And in it, the Quran was recited and listened to. So very clearly, again, we have this continuation of this primordial method of pedagogy, of listening to what is being read. The sunnah of the Prophet, meaning his hadith primarily, and also the things that he did and tacitly approved of, because that is the basic definition of the sunnah. It's not just the words that the Prophet said, it's also his actions, his lifestyle, his his, uh, habitual activities, the way that he did things, the way he dressed, his akhlaq, his manners towards people. And also there are things that he did not necessarily do himself but that he tacitly approved of or did not approve of. So one example of that is when he was out in the desert and he was presented with a lizard to eat and he didn't eat it but he didn't mind other people eating it. This is the basic definition of the sunnah and we have that conveyed to us through oral transmission. So the narrations that we have about what the Prophet ﷺ did and and, uh, what he said have come to us and are uh, judged uh, in terms of authenticity according to the soundness of the text conveyed as well as the soundness of the chain of narration and the character of the narrator. If it is that a chain of narration has a couple of people dropped, for example, then that will lower its level of authenticity, even if the words and the meaning are deemed to be correct and based on other riwayat, other narrations, etc. So that's a whole field in itself, which is mustalah al-hadith or usul al-hadith. And our scholars have gone to a tremendous amount of work over the centuries to determine these very things. To what extent are these oral narrations, these oral transmissions actually authentic? And it is the most highly sophisticated science of determining the truth of anything. And we can even apply that to our time today because we live in a world of fake news and all sorts of spurious reports and people just saying whatever they want to say and Twitter being a a, a courtroom for people and it's very much out of control. So how do we as ordinary people judge and decide what's true and what isn't true? That in itself is a whole topic. However, what we can do as Muslims is learn a little bit about some of these rules for determining the authenticity of oral transmissions, and we can even apply that uh, to our own situation. Just as individuals, we can have a look at some news thing and say, okay, where did that come from? To what extent is the content of that authentic? Does it match? Is it consistent with other things that I've heard about that topic or that I might know about that topic? And what about the people who are relating that to me? Where did they get their information from? And what can I say about the character of the people who are giving that over? And that doesn't mean we go into some character disparagement or anything like that. We're not looking at that. But what we're looking at is how truthful are these people known to be generally? And how do they conduct themselves generally without going, as I said, into some type of character assassination or anything, but just thinking, do these people have a good sense of morals? And 
would they most likely be telling the truth given who they work for, the type of agenda they might need to push for their employer, for example? So there are many, many things that we need to look at and assess in a rational and objective way to determine how we know what we're being exposed to is true or not. And my point is just to say that we're able to extract some of those principles of weighing things up from our very own tradition. So it shows how relevant and how universal this knowledge is. How do we know what we're hearing is true? And then we have to also assess ourselves in that and say, well, am I going to give that over to other people as well? Or am I somebody who's passing on fake news and fake knowledge and not really being aware of that? And should I participate or should I just stop it there? And in a way that makes us take ourselves to account for what it is that we say as well. As far as the spoken word is concerned, its value is enormous because our entire belief system is based on that. Our entire belief system is not based on some ancient texts or scrolls that were dug up in a cave somewhere, or it's not given to us through means that we don't really understand and handed down from perceived pious person to another pious person. I spoke to somebody of another religion once, and I asked them, where do you actually get your knowledge from? And I was told, oh, I get it from my teacher. So I asked, well, where did your teacher get it from? Oh, his teacher. Oh, okay. And before that, well, obviously from his teacher and his teacher. And I said, and then where does it actually come from originally? And I was told, oh, I don't know. So I thought, how can you base your entire belief system on a body of knowledge which has been given to you, but you don't even know where it comes from at the beginning? And the thing about Islam is that we know exactly where the very first word came from. We know exactly who it came from, Jibril salam. We know who it was given to, the Prophet wasallam. We know the circumstances in which it was given. We know what that word is and it has been the cause of study for what well, since then. And there's nothing about our knowledge which has come to us that we are not able to verify and authenticate. And alhamdulillah, this is a huge blessing. And even I heard Sheikh Hamza saying once that we know how to pronounce the Quran. We know how to read it. In fact, we have a whole science called Tajweed, which enables us to read it, and not just in one way, but in 10 different ways, the 10 variant readings of the Quran. Whereas if you ask any Christian how did the original Injil come, the gospel? What language was it in? They don't know. They don't know what it sounds like. They wouldn't know how to read it if they happened to see something written in it. And most people think that the Bible was Latin or Greek or English, and they don't even know what it is in its original text. So to have the Quran as we have it, as something spoken that has been preserved in written form from the very, very beginning is an incredible blessing. Indeed, we have revealed this and we will protect it, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. As English speakers then, what do we hope to achieve or what can we achieve by partaking in this most primordial form of pedagogy in another language. How will it benefit us? 
The first point is to acknowledge and have a lot of respect for the importance of reading and to partake in this particular method of imparting knowledge and learning knowledge because it is an extremely Mubarak way of giving over uh, of pedagogy. We know from the way in which our books and the Quran is still taught is through this process. Up until this day, this process is continuing uh, through study circles, through the halaqa, where there is the teacher and the students and either the teacher reads or the students read to the teacher and the other students listen and then the teacher explains what's in the text. This is the traditional way and it continues until today. It's particularly important that we're able to access this and understand it in the Arabic language, in the original language in which this knowledge has been preserved. When it comes to reading skills in Arabic, they're very specific and they're not restricted just to fluency and they're not restricted just to pronunciation because fluency and pronunciation are only a part of it. What's really the skill in reading in Arabic is to be able to read with Arab, which is the correct diacritical marks at the ending of each word. Why is reading with Arab more important than reading just with fluency or just with correct pronunciation? Because it's through Arab that a person obtains a sound understanding, a sound comprehension of what it is that is being said. Because it's through Arab and through the application of sarf, morphology and nahu, syntax, that a person understands the construction of words and the relationship between all the words. The changes that occur at the end of the words are a reflection of the relationship between them and the correct meaning cannot be ascertained without knowing what those changes are. And really that's the hard part. It's difficult for English speakers to acquire good fluency and pronunciation, especially if you have an Australian accent. But the thing is, what we can do with a lot of practice and, and effort, inshallah, is acquire the sound application of the rules of Nahu and Sarf to our reading. The study of the Arabic linguistic sciences, the instrumental sciences, is what corrects the tongue, is what enables a person to speak properly in Arabic and to speak in an eloquent way, inshallah, if you're blessed with that. And likewise, the other instrumental science is mantik, which is logic, and that's for the mind. That enables a person to think according to the rules of correct reasoning. And reasoning is defined as the ability or the skill of inferencing new knowledge from previous knowledge. So it enables to look at and know what the rules are and the proper correct way to ascertain and derive inferential knowledge from propositions that have already been stated. So these two things are really the first steps that need to be acquired by a student of knowledge. And that doesn't matter if you are an English speaker or an Arabic speaker or any other language. These are universals. So people have always had a universal way of thinking and approaching knowledge. And it's only in modern times that that's really gone out the window, where we no longer think from proper rules of reasoning, but it's just our opinion. It's what I think. 
Okay, so this is my opinion on the issue and I've looked at other people's opinions and I've come to my own truth. And this is very problematic because where's the standard now? What do we know to be objective truth or false truth? So we're coming back all the time when we think about language and we think about intellectual reasoning, we're coming back always to what is our knowledge, what are our sources of truth? Is it sufficient to just go through an Arabic text with a translation? No, it's not, because the translation is merely an interpretation, which is expressed through the words of the target language. So the translator comes, interprets the Arabic and expresses it in English for you. Often people will say, what's the correct translation of this or that, whatever text they have? And they might feel that there's something wrong about it. And it could be wrong according to that person's own level of language or that person's understanding or conception of the words and what's been said. It is possible, of course, to completely mistranslate something because it means that the concepts haven't been understood properly from the beginning. But if it is that it's understood and then it's expressed in a certain way, then that's the interpretation of the translator. Reading an interpretation by any translator is vastly different from reading the words in the original language and it's also extremely inferior. It never ever gives across the real meaning, it doesn't give across the artistry, it doesn't give across the dhok, which is the, the taste. It doesn't allow the person to really grasp and feel what is being said. It's very deficient. When we're looking at Arabic texts, then we need to hear what the author said, even if we don't understand it, and the amount of blessing that is in that and the way in which that enables the mind and the heart to be opened when we're hearing things in Arabic is something that perhaps defies words. We're not able to really explain what happens inside of us. And just as we know when we hear the Quran and we don't understand and it can move us, likewise hearing the words of the scholars can move us as well. And I know an auntie who doesn't know any Arabic and she never ever misses one gathering of knowledge. And one time she went to a gathering here of uh, Habib Ali al-Jifri and she didn't understand anything. And then when she stood up to leave, she put her hand on her heart and she said, Alhamdulillah, I'm full. And I thought, subhanAllah, she didn't understand one word except for the basics, inshallah and bismillah and subhanallah and things like that. But when it came to the text and the explanation of the text that Habib gave, she didn't understand, but it went straight to her heart. And I think that's the most wonderful example of a living taste and a living experience of knowledge. The translation can guide us towards meaning, but it doesn't contain the full linguistic or metaphysical meanings that are intended by the author. So obviously it's going to be very deficient. And the key to really understanding properly is, of course, knowledge of Arabic grammar. Because as we said, if there's no knowledge of Arabic grammar, then it's not possible to have a full reading. Will you be able to understand? Yes, of course. Most Arabs don't even know Arabic grammar anymore. So you can understand everything, but did you really get into the knowledge did you really get into the science of what's happening on that piece of paper? And no, 
It's not possible if you don't understand or if you've never studied the rules of Arab and the rules of grammar. The ultimate skill really of the student of knowledge is to exert themselves to be able to read correctly. When it comes to writing and debating and uh, rhetoric and discussing issues, these are things that happen later. But somebody has to master the art of reading a text before they're able to go on to actually producing their own. How will we learn if we're not exposed to texts that are being read? We have to listen. And it's a very important skill that I think uh, English-speaking people really need to try and develop is to try and listen. So listen to Nurul Iman, which is the radio that comes from Terim. Listen to good Arabic texts being read or Arabic stories or anything. But if you want Shari knowledge, of course, you have to listen to Shari uh, programs. So the best thing to do is to get Nurul Iman on Mixler and to have it on as much as possible and to listen to the durus and to listen to the talks and listen to the things, even the nasheeds and things that are going on in order to increase your exposure to Arabic because it's only through listening that language begins to develop like a baby. Babies can't speak, but they hear everything. And so as adults, we need to try and tap into that side of ourselves where we use our hearing, develop our ability to absorb the language and know also so that production always comes at the end. So a person can read and understand, but they might not have the production skills of writing and speaking until much later. So this primordial pedagogy of reading or reciting and listening is obviously the basis. And then it's, as we've said, it leads to the development of a person reading a text for themselves. It requires a lot of study beforehand and at the time of reading when a person is the one who's doing the recitation for others to listen to there are a number of processes which are at work all simultaneously the first is the recognition of the words and the very beginning of that is for example to look at a page of Quran and to be able to identify where one word ends and one word begins and this can be quite a process for a beginner because it can look like all the words are running into each other um, and they're not. So first of all, the words have to be recognised and the application of the rules have to be uh, established as your eyes are scanning the words. So as you read, you have to see the relationship between the words and be able to apply the correct rules and at the same time have an instant comprehension of the meaning. It's quite a complex process and it takes time. And inshallah, I encourage everybody to begin to sit down and to work on their reading, to read children's books with harakat, to read anything that enables you to strengthen these skills of word recognition and looking, if you haven't studied grammar before, then looking at the words and then trying to get into a class or somehow where you can start to study the rules and the relationships between the words and then, of course, to develop your understanding. These days it can be quite difficult. As we said, a lot of Arabs themselves don't know their language properly. They don't know how to read properly. They can read for understanding, but they don't necessarily read or speak with the skill of applying the rules 
of Arabic grammar because generally Arabic is not spoken correctly. So every country you go to, it will be spoken different according to a dialect and it won't be spoken with the fusha, with the pure Arabic, the classical Arabic. Except, funnily enough, for children's cartoons, which are always produced in very good fusha, and also children's books and school books, newspapers as well. So where there's an official aspect to the language, it will be produced in fusha. But when it comes to speaking, then there isn't. And I saw, a, I think, an Egyptian lady, like a, a linguist, and she was talking about this and she said, in the old days before colonialism, a child would memorize the Quran by about the age of, say, 7 to 10. And then after that, they would memorize the Alfiya of Ibn Malik, who, which is a 1,000-line poem of Arabic grammar. And she said after that, they had not only the words and the rules, but they understood at least 50,000 words in the Arabic language, what those words are, how they're constructed, how they relate to each other. And they have the finest literature in which all of that is embedded, which is the Quran preserved in their hearts. She said when the Europeans came and they destroyed the madrasa system and they took learning away from the traditional places of the mosques and the madrasas and the study circles and they replaced the curriculum with the secular sciences, then all of that was lost. And she said now it's usual for a child to only have 2,000 words in their vocabulary by the time they are around the same age and those 2,000 words are of a local dialect and not of a good linguistic quality. Few people in the West have really mastered Arabic grammar and, the, and Arabic reading and the sciences of the Arabic language in the same way that Sheikh Hamza, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf or Dr. Omar, uh, Dr. Omar Farouk or Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad have done. Most students who go overseas and who study never really attain a very high or proficient level of reading or of understanding of Arabic grammar because it's taught in such a piecemeal way. So if it's taught in a way which is much more holistic, then it's possible for them to uh, grasp the core concepts in a much easier fashion. But as it is that many students graduate and they don't feel confident to read and they don't feel that they've really understood Arabic grammar. And the need in the West is not in language skills. The need in the West is to deal with marriage problems and social issues and making sure that the prayer is prayed properly in the mosque, uh, that people are basically trying to stick on the path and trying to bring people's hearts closer to loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when it comes to dealing with Arabic texts, it's not really on the priority list. However, that's not to say that it's not important. And again, there's another issue related to that, which is that we would never tell our children, oh, don't study physics because it's too hard and don't study uh, high-level chemistry because you're not going to need it in your everyday life or don't go and study maths because you won't need anything more than just basic addition and subtraction and multiplication. Don't go ahead and do that. What All that you need to do is just study the very, very basics and you'll be happy in life. 
No one would ever tell their children that, or very, very few people, when it came to secular knowledge. People will encourage their children to study physics and science and mathematics because it's a sign of intelligence. And if somebody can achieve a level of success in those subjects, then they have achieved something that's very praiseworthy. Why? Because there's an incredible value attached to those subjects because they lead to this real gem, which is a career and money and being able to buy the things that we need. And that is a sign of success and prosperity and wealth and ability. And they're the things that are prized in our culture. But when it comes to the Islamic sciences and developing the skill of reading and the application of complex grammar rules and being able to understand what our tradition over the previous centuries has produced for us, then it's not given the same weight. It's not given the same value. We're told, oh, it's so hard. You don't need to do that. You just need to have a basic knowledge of how to pray and how to fast and you'll be fine. And so what we do is we really cut ourselves and our children off from exploring and from diving into the incredible depths that our tradition provides for us and has provided for countless others before us. And it really stops us from being able to develop intellectually and spiritually in the fullest way. We need to come out of our comfort zones. We need to read. We need to make mistakes. We need to not be afraid to take this path of learning and to try and benefit ourselves and other people from it. There's nothing for us to be shy about. When it comes to reading, the potential to make mistakes is very, very high, and it happens all the time. But inshallah, if we have the right intention and we have the right attitude towards it, then inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless us in this most profound and natural and organic way of learning and of teaching, and inshallah he will make our path to knowledge one that is blessed, one where the angels lower their wings, and where we are able to obtain success. I apologize for going on a bit, but I did just want to take the opportunity to talk about learning and studying from a different perspective, and inshallah to try and shed some light on the importance of this form of pedagogy and why we still do it and what are some of the secrets in it, inshallah. And the most important thing is that this is a prophetic way. This is the sunnah way to teach and to learn. So I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us all in that and to make us people of a good intention and who have a very high himma, a very high aspiration for learning and to to fulfill that for us, inshallah. Wassallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi salam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.